Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion about some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Kurenkov. And I'm your other host, Dr. Sharon Zhao. This week, we'll be covering how AI can speed up sepsis detection to prevent hundreds of deaths. We'll talk about the generative art AI rival to Dolly called Midjourney and how they're doing. We'll talk about how clinicians can build trust with machine learning by using it. And we'll also talk about how robots learn in the wild. Uh, finally, we'll be talking about how startups are using AI to help doctors fight burnout and also stealth submarines and how AI will make them less stealthy. We'll end with a note on how you know AI is generating a lot of cool things like absurd food photography and generated book jackets based on the literary titles. So a fun set of stories and uh, lots on medicine, actually. Um, all right. Well, that's it. Let's kick off the first one. All right. So let's get going with our first story in applications and business. AI speeds up sepsis detection to prevent hundreds of deaths. So this new story is about the targeted real-time early warning system which is an AI system developed at John Hopkins University that catches symptoms of sepsis hours earlier than traditional methods and makes it so patients are 20% less likely to die because of it. And uh, an extensive study that just came out in Nature Medicine with uh, a lot of data, a lot of real trials in hospitals, uh, you know, they collected the data and showed that to be the case. And this is a really big deal because it's a very common uh, occurrence in hospitals. About 1.7 million adults develop sepsis every year in the U.S., and more than uh, 250,000 of them die. And sepsis is Um, this condition that's pretty hard to catch because the symptoms are fever and confusion. And so it can be kind of mixed up with other things. So really catching it as early as possible is essential. And this system, which uh, combines uh, data from their medical records, as well as real-time sensor readings, um, can really do that seemingly much better and does lead to, uh, you know, way lower mentality, which is really exciting. This was also a huge study. Actually, over 40,000 clinicians were involved across five different hospitals. So, you know, it wasn't just a single hospital and not a single doctor, just tons of people. Um, and they actually used AI in treating 590,000 patients. Um, the system also reviewed 173,900 previous patient cases. So this was a very large study. I'm, uh, yeah, this is quite a bit uh, covered here. So I'm glad that medical AI studies are starting to get so large scale. This is also, um, yeah, very, very impressive. 
Exactly. And um, we cover it in this uh, section and not research, actually, because it is uh, being spun out. So there's a company named Bayesian Health, which was uh, spun out from John Hopkins, which uh, has led and managed the deployment and is also partnering with two of the largest electronic health record providers, uh, Epic and uh, Cerner, to ensure that this tool can be implemented at our hospitals. So this is a case where it's not just uh, sort of early on research, which we often talk about. This is actually something that's developed that's been seemingly you know heavily tested and may actually be coming soon to a lot of hospitals uh, which is really really cool that this specific application of ai does seem to have this much of a improvement over traditional you know, previous methods for sepsis detection Absolutely. And on to our next article, uh, Inside Midjourney, the generative art AI that rivals Dolly. So there's a company called Midjourney, and it also creates a generative AI tool similar to what Dolly provides, um, which is OpenAI's text to image generator. Uh, and Midjourney uh, opened its closed beta, allowing basically anyone to sign up for an account. And so you can just go on, sign up for an account, and just generate um, some of these fake images. And of course, you know, Dolly, uh, there's actually recently did open it up too, but for a while it was a closed, um, a closed invite only uh, type thing. And so it, this was actually a, a stress test of their system. So Midjourney actually just posted on their Discord server and just said, you know, for the next day, the next 24 hours, we're just going to open it up to everyone and see if uh, our servers are actually ready for this. Um, and and so it's very exciting that, you know, this kind of tool is being opened up to a lot of different people. There's this, you know, this is a free trial period. People get a limited number of generations before you have to buy a subscription. Also, uh, the cheapest plans um, basically allow 200 images um, per month for just $10. And then the premium tier is unlimited generations for $30 uh, for each month. And that's just for non-commercial use. If you want to use for commercial use, there's other things. And specifically, actually, for NFTs, uh, you have to uh, pay 20% royalty on any revenue over $20,000 per month. So if you do create oh, an NFT, they're very targeted to like certain people. Um, but I have seen actually people generate NFTs with Dolly. So I think OpenAI actually very quietly took away that restriction I saw on Reddit. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is all coming. Uh, this is all coming. And it's very exciting because uh, this means everyone can use it. And Midjourney does produce, you know, slightly different images from Dolly. It actually is particularly good at creating different environments like fantasy ones or dystopian sci-fi ones, has dramatic lighting, um, kind of looks like things are from a video game. And so a couple of my favorites are interior of a spaceship filled with lush plants and photorealistic minions inside the Windows XP background, which is, by the way, hilarious because it is the Windows XP background in an oil painting with the minions mm -hmm. in there. So, yeah, pretty funny. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Did you play with it? Yeah, I, I, I like these generations. It's interesting to see another alternative um, kind of tool. Uh, and there's been a, 
I think people maybe aren't as aware of kind of since the VQGAN clip kind of explosion, there's been a bunch of little different websites like uh, Night Cafe. But the quality of these generations really is pretty impressive. It's not DALI level, but it's maybe better than DALI Mini or something like that. And uh, I think it, it's pretty exciting that uh, an independent group that isn't sort of the massive behemoth that is OpenAI was able to put something like this together. Um, it's, it's quite cool. And, you know, hopefully that means that um, people will have access to these kinds of tools, even if they can't afford to pay the amount that OpenAI would uh, ask for or Maybe if they want an API for their own project, um, yeah, I could see a lot of good good outcomes if there could be more players rather than just just OpenAI releasing Dali two, right? Why would anyone want an API for their own project, Andre? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Speaking of that, actually, let's move on to our lighting round. So first up, we have OpenAI expands access to DALI 2, its powerful image generating AI system. So just last week, uh, and I do wonder if the mid-journey story was uh, kind of released because of this. Maybe not. But uh, last week, OpenAI uh, was uh, OpenAI made access to Delhi to uh, wider. It uh, announced in a blog post that it will expedite access to customers on the wait list with the goal to reach roughly 1 million people within the next few weeks. And I actually got my Delhi to access last week. And it allowed you to commercialize your, um, your creation. So now they actually are starting to charge for generations and they have a whole kind of spiel on you can use it uh, on the corporate and so on. So exciting times. Yeah, people can use DALI 2 to make NFTs, I guess. I don't know. I know, I know. <laughs> and our second lightning round story, we have Amazon-owned self-driving firm Zooks seeks to test RoboTaxi in California. And it's about how Zooks, uh, the self-driving company that is now owned by Amazon, has been bought out several years ago, said that it is gearing up to try and launch its robo-taxi business. And uh, this is vehicles that have no pedals or steering wheels. So they are trying to apply to uh, the experiment to test. And of course, they will not be able to have safety drivers in the car, presumably given that there are no wheels or safety pedals. So that's cool. I would want to ride one of those, I think. I'm excited to see how they're doing after the acquisition. I feel like this is a big step for Amazon, um, you know, with Zooks here. So excited to see where this goes and how they actually do. I know Amazon is really good at logistics as a company um, and would love to see how well they do in in this space. Um, Yeah. I see them as a very good, mm-hmm. you know, good at being practical kind of company and delighting the customer. So I'm, I'm just curious how, how they fare compared to the other companies out there. Definitely. And they've been uh, in the game for a long time. They're one of the, you know, big companies going pretty early on, uh, you know, maybe a decade ago or something like that. So they've been working on this for a long time and have a lot of talent. So, um, 
this is pretty exciting to see uh, some hopefully progress towards pushing some of the technology out of the company. And on to our next lightning round article, Baidu unveils latest autonomous electric vehicle, Apollo RT6. So Baidu, which is the Chinese search engine, similar to Google, uh, they actually unveiled their latest electric autonomous driving car uh, on Thursday, and it's called Apollo RT6, and it'll be part of Baidu's robo-taxi fleet, um, and this is just pushing towards autonomous driving in China. Uh, it looks, it actually makes me think of a Tesla <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah it kind of does. Survived. And it's interesting. We, we've been seeing so many stories about self-driving of crews and Zooks and now this. Seems like a lot of things are happening this year for self-driving, like in the real world. It's Yeah, it's kind of funny because actually it's when the hype has been dying down and a lot of people are like, this isn't going to happen. But then maybe it's happening when people... It's starting when it, to, when yeah. it's not happening, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and our last lightning round article: Neural Sleeve is a bionic leg wrap that uses AI to correct walking patterns. Um, so this is a startup, Psionic, and uh, in collaboration with Fuse Project, which is Eve Bahar's design studio. That's fairly well known. Uh, they together developed a bionic wearable, and this uses actually electric pulses and AI to correct muscle movements in people who have limited mobility. And it basically looks like a, a wrap around your leg to help it kind of zap you um, to uh, be able to uh, walk much more functionally. And this is um, for people who have difficulties walking, which might be caused by multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, spinal cord injuries, and even strokes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very cool. Moving on to our research and advancement news stories. We have novel methods allow robots to learn in the wild from Science Daily. Uh, so this is covering the paper World Human to Robot Imitation in the Wild that was recently published uh, and presented in New York at the uh, RSS conference. And it's a pretty cool new uh, piece of robotics research which shows how you could very quickly and easily demonstrate to a robot how to do something. So in robotics, there's, uh, or broadly speaking, there's a few paradigms to teach agents how to do things. Uh, you can have them do trial and error, which is reinforcement learning, but that takes a very long time. And you can also have imitation learning, where you give them demonstrations of what to do, but that can be difficult because, well, do you need to remotely control the robot? You know, how does that work? Um, may not be trivial to actually give a demonstration. And so what's cool here is you can just do the task yourself, uh, like open a drawer or, you know, uh, open the refrigerator, close the refrigerator, wipe the whiteboard, these kinds of household things. Just do it once, record yourself, and the robot will actually then use that and try to match kind of a visual um, effects on the world through video. Uh, so you only need to do it once. You don't need to remote control the robot. Uh, and the robot can pretty quickly kind of recreate what you did and uh, succeed in doing the task. So uh, pretty cool new research and definitely does outperform some of these other uh, existing techniques that typically require a lot more data and demonstrations. 
This looks super cool. Uh, it's just awesome now that people can really just actually demonstrate something as a human in the real world and the robot can do it. Because I think typically what, you know, imitation learning or just human demonstrations, what they actually looked like was not really the human actually physically going in there and doing it, right? Andre, it was often, I mean, often it's just like clicks or, you know, where your mouse is and what keys you're pressing kind of thing. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's been um, a lot of sort of kinesthetic uh, teaching. So you actually have to like actually guide the robot's hand yes. <laughs> to yes. do the task, yes. which is not intuitive. Uh, and you can also use VR or like, you know, video game controllers, but that's not easy to do. Uh, so this is definitely much more easy to do. Um, you just need to have a camera pointed at you and, and you do it and the robot can then and I figured it out. So I think it's a very, it's not an entirely new idea, but this is a very nice manifestation of it and uses some pretty elegant uh, ideas. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think this is, this is true imitation learning or true watching what the human actually does uh, because this is how we watch other humans do things. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, this is... Yeah, cool. very, very similar to how we do things, exactly. And... This was, uh, by the way, from uh, Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute, which does a lot of robotics uh, type stuff like this. Uh, and yeah, is is maybe less known, but uh, CMU is quite the leader in robotics. And to be clear, it's not any task out there. Like you mentioned, it's uh, common household tasks. You know, opening a drawer or the, or turning on the sink um, or or taking a trash bag out of. Uh, the trash can. I, I did think that was kind of nice. It seemed like, oh, this is not necessarily a super easy object to necessarily even carry, but um, yeah. Yeah, it, it has some limitations. It relies on sort of a set of primitives, so it isn't like a fully expressive, it can't do anything. It kind of has blocks that it can um, uh, kind of build in a specific way to do, achieve some ends. So it's not going to kind of do very complicated Things. But the core idea of it, which is essentially just, you know, the robot tries to do what the human did, and then you remove the human and the robot from the video. So you have this like video, you know, uh, shot of both, and you try to make the videos the same. It's a very intuitive idea, and I do think it can kind of be pushed further, probably. And on to our next article Clinicians can build trust with machine learning through experience. So this is a a new study published in uh, Nature Partner Journal's Digital Medicine. And they basically, the study was uh, led by Johns Hopkins uh, University, as well as University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it was basically a series of interviews with 20 doctors, 20 clinicians, who used the machine learning system to monitor for sepsis in their practice, uh, similar to our earlier article. And they basically had the finding that, you know, over time through experience with interacting with a machine learning system, clinicians can build trust to work with them. So this is more of a qualitative study. And um, they had, you know, four major findings that they kind of delineated here. So one is that clinicians didn't, didn't see a big difference between machine learning systems and traditional 
clinical decision support systems. Um, but then this also, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Pro is maybe that um, it does flow into their workflow. They're already using decision support systems, but the con is that they might not understand what's going on with the machine learning and that could cause misinterpretation of the results. The second is that clinicians used machine learning systems for both diagnosis and post-diagnosis care. So this means that they um, used the system to diagnose patients uh, um, and uh, they also used it uh, afterwards to monitor patients. And um, the third is while many, many doctors lacked an understanding of what was going on with the machine learning system, they were still willing to adopt it over time, um, uh, especially after reading studies about how the system is validated or if the system received a positive review from another expert, which makes sense. And then finally, the study showed that, you know, it, while clinicians, they were excited about the possibility of machine learning, they still... They still were concerned about over-reliance on using it um, within clinical settings. Yeah, exactly. So pretty detailed article describing all of this. Uh, quite interesting. The paper itself is titled Human Machine Teaming is Key to AI Adoption, Clinicians Experience with a Deployed Machine Learning System. And it does feel to me like the things described here are going to be probably kind of the experience that a lot of creative professionals or just generally, you know, uh, a lot of people and many careers and skill sets uh, get as they start using new AI tools where you will probably not understand kind of the machine learning systems, internal functionality. But then uh, as you grow to understand it on a more intuitive level of a behavior of it rather than the technical implementation of it, you will find a way to uh, kind of be comfortable and know its limits and know kind of this whole uh, dynamic where you can um, maybe collaborate or you can think of it as um, you know, supplementing you and making your job easier just like any tool. So interesting to see the description that's quite detailed in the context of clinicians. And uh, yeah, I guess it's good news given what we just talked about uh, earlier with regards to sepsis. Yes, and I think this is actually pretty consistent with uh, my experience, even just testing these systems and research with clinicians at Stanford Hospital. So definitely found that clinicians became much more, if they were just a little bit more educated on the system, they um, trusted things a little bit more. There's definitely still over-reliance. Even when you know you're over-relying on something, you still end up over-relying on it. So um, there's still a risk of that for sure. Uh, and I still think there's better methods for explaining things, especially when things are truly, really and truly uncertain. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done on the user experience of these, these potential products that do go out. And uh, something we should mention, actually, this is uh, the sepsis uh, system here is the same one as the one we talked about in the beginning. It's the targeted real-time early warning system. Nice. Trues. So, yeah, looks like they've got a few papers, uh, you know, coming out. And it's, it's interesting to see that they not only have this more uh, quantitative results paper, but also this more uh, 
kind of, I don't know, qualitative uh, article that deals more with interviews of clinicians and their experience. So um, definitely good to see both, I would say. And moving on to our lightning round. First up, we have machine learning identifies gun buyers at risk of suicide, uh, which is about a new study from the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis, which, uh, as the title suggests, may help identify handgun purchasers who are at high risk of suicide, which um, would be useful given that handguns are often used for that purpose. After that, we have Microsoft launches similar to train drone AI systems. And so this is about this platform to train autonomous aircraft, AirSim, which is basically a flight simulator for drones, uh, which can now be used to train and develop software for controlling them. Next article is open source platform enables research on privacy preserving machine learning. So uh, actually the biggest benchmarking data set to date for machine learning technique designed with pri data privacy in mind has been released by researchers at the University of Michigan and it is open source. And specifically it is uh, using a federated learning, a benchmark on federated learning. Last article is DeepMind and UCL stochastic mu zero achieves SOTA results in complex stochastic environments. And so this is a new approach and it achieves um, best performance um, that's comparable or better than state-of-the-art methods in both complex single and complex multi-agent environments um, while maintaining very good performance on the original mu zero. Yeah, so it's it's uh, a cool step forward where now you have probabilistic on certain environments and not just stuff like Go where, you know, it's always the same outcome regardless of your action. It's going to make the game harder and harder. Harder and harder. Oh. Moving on to uh, stochasticity. Next, we're going to get to, you know, robotic manipulation. Who knows what else? But moving on to our society and ethics and news stories... First up, we have, again, about medicine. Meet the startups using AI to help doctors fight burnout. This is from Fast Company, and it surveys a fair number of different startups, as it says, to help make the overall experience of caretaking in the healthcare system more efficient and basically make it so fewer doctors burn out. Uh, as the title says. And this is uh, definitely very important. Even before COVID-19, 30% of physicians said they felt burned out. And that, of course, got even worse uh, during COVID, which was, uh, one can only presume, nightmarish. And um, yeah, the situation is dire, but uh, at least there are some things that may help. So some examples they cite here are things like a system to speed up pre-visit evaluation. So um, this is, for instance, being done by the San Francisco-based HealthNote uh, startup, which streamlines patient intake, which is this whole pre-visit evaluation with a text-based AI chatbot. Uh, there's other examples here as well, for instance, about uh, transcriber transcribing doctor's notes. 
So um, there's uh, this company, DeepScribe, which is a voice-based digital assistant that allows a doctor to have a normal conversation with a patient and then take care of writing it instead of having the doctor uh, themselves uh, put it into the program or whatever, uh, which seems like uh, definitely would be a good thing to have where you don't need to just write down stuff. You can just talk. And there are uh, quite a few other examples. So um, kind of a positive article. I think it's cool to see kind of variety of ways people are finding to uh, use AI to streamline uh, taking care of people. You know, I think this actually does help wedge AI into the healthcare system, especially when doctors are really being overwhelmed. And if there's any any way for this stuff to help, it's really useful. I've heard really good things actually from doctors about some of these transcription services. Uh, so doctors themselves saying, I can't live without this. This is so great. Um, but of course, um, the article also mentions there are physicians who do very much doubt this. And there was actually a survey in 2019 of 1,500 doctors across the world um, and specifically found that those in the U.S. expressed the most skepticism of AI, so 49%. But again, that was before the pandemic, so I'm actually very curious what they think now. Maybe they're more skeptical. I don't know. <laughs> but maybe for some of these specific use cases, they're less skeptical, which is what I found very anecdotally. Um, it's true. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think... This um, article does cover also helping with triage, so AI tools that are designed to help flag patients who need critical care. Um, and it lists several companies like RapidAI, VizAI, or Terrace that all have FDA approval for algorithms uh, that detect signs of stroke and brain bleeds and things like that. So maybe as uh, you know, the healthcare system has some of these tools uh, become part of it? So DeepScribe or some of these triage tools, it will become kind of a more concrete, uh, familiar concept to doctors and um, there will not be the skepticism. With some experience with these systems, they'll kind of understand that probably um, there are a lot of use cases where AI yeah, can help. And on to our next article, will AI steal submarines stealth? So submarines, you know, we've been developing much faster and much quieter submarines, and they've just been working in stealth um, to avoid enemies detecting it. And there have been a lot of technologies around that. And uh, actually, the article notes that in the early 1960s, um, nuclear-powered submarines began to emerge, and these are like very, very quiet submarines, very hard to detect um, with radar and active sonar. Um, so, it, you know, there's very, very little out there to detect it. But that being said, they still emit um, some kind of very low frequency noises that can be picked up from far away uh, by various networks. And so it's a game of hide and seek. Um, and these submarines are you know, really expensive. So it costs about $2.8 billion for each of these nuclear-powered submarines, according to the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. And that's super, super expensive for just one of these things. So if you, and the whole goal is to be stealthy with them underwater. 
Um, however, over time and actually more recently, uh, people found maybe AI can help use some of the more, more recent sensors or use some of the sensors out there now to be able to detect and find these submarines in the nearest future. Um, and some of these sensors that AI might work on and get data from are the uh, LIDAR sensors. So LIDAR is being used, you know, in self-driving very often. It's also pretty expensive, especially if you wanted it to have really good range and to be actually be installed on satellites. Um, and the other sensor is magnetic anomaly detection or MAD instruments. And these kind of monitor the Earth's magnetic fields and can detect subtle disturbances, um, maybe by um, a, a submerged submarine, the metal hull of it. And, uh, you know, it works at low altitudes or underwater, but it actually is not sensitive enough. So the article also covers some mobile sensors um, that are less expensive, um, but can you know, roam in the seas themselves has a pretty funny, interesting picture of a robo shark by the Chinese Navy, which Honestly, it looks pretty cool and kind of hilarious. It looks like a robo shark. Yes, yes. it is undeniably a shark and it's robo and it looks completely generated by Dolly. So I would give it a good look. Um, and then the U.S. is also developing drones that are, you know, only $15,000 each. Um, but they're loud and people are not sure whether that would be stealthy enough uh, for, for the open seas. Yeah, so, uh, wow, I did not realize submarines cost that much. That's <laughs> 2.8 billion for one of them, uh, one nuclear-powered submarine. Wow. It does make me wonder if a private company should start working on this, because my guess is some of the costs might not be real, just like with SpaceX. and. Yeah, that's true, but I guess there's probably less demand to go. That's right. Uh, <laughs> below water in such a way that you cannot be detected uh, <laughs> and into, into space. Uh, but um, the article is kind of uh, pretty important in part because um, it is, you know, a big deal to have the capacity to have uh, submarines. It's um, kind of relied upon to have a fair portion of, uh, you know, a given country's military forces uh, exist in this kind of invulnerable position. Um, so even, you know, even if there is a potential to reduce uh, submarine stealth or even, you know, make it impossible to be fully stealthy, um, that would definitely impact kind of the possibilities for military strategy and these kinds of things. So, um, Yet another area where AI is making an impact, apparently, that uh, definitely I did not even think uh, would be something uh, related, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting how much perception influences defense strategy, uh, because you don't fully, you don't have full knowledge of what the enemy or anyone else knows. And so that's, it's just interesting that even if, you know, we say, hey, it's possible for AI to do this, then it becomes a threat, even if it actually isn't actively being done and actually actually maybe even doesn't work um so uh, that that's really interesting mm. yeah yeah um 
I do have to wonder if we'll get more of these RoboShark. Like you get RoboSharks at first and then get robot fish and then you get basically a whole little underwater drone uh, you know, division. So not only will drones be in the air, they will be underwater. And I'm sure that is an area being worked upon. So So no more real fish, yeah. just drone fish. Drone sea anemones, what do you think? <laughs> I'd, I'd get that as a pet probably as a pet. <laughs> that's where it all starts then it'll take over definitely definitely and uh, speaking of that moving on to our fun and neat stories where we get to enjoy the more silly sides of ai starting with the absurd ai generated professional food photography made with dolly 2 from me, Maxir's blog. And it's pretty much what the title says. It's a bunch of absurd AI-generated professional food photography. We'll link to it so you can see some of these images for yourself. But uh, unsurprisingly, being from Delhi 2, these are quite impressive. And uh, in some cases, I think, fairly delightful. I really uh, liked the look of, of the cob salad and the shape of the robot emoji uh, image here. Uh, what did you think of this? I know show? you wanted to eat that one. <laughs> would it, sure would it make the salad much more enjoyable for you? I think I would emotionally enjoy the experience more. It wouldn't taste better, but I would have a better time overall. Yeah. And uh, my favorite one, which I, you know, began salivating over was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the shape of a Rubik's Cube. Uh, and so, I mean, it looks great. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's one of these things where, you know, you're, it used to be the case that, you know, they, I could not possibly do something like this. And then you give it uh, a prompt and it just does something that's totally reasonable uh, so I don't even know as a listener of the spot yes can you imagine an image of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the shape of a Rubik's Cube I'm not sure if you could but Dali too could and it is uh, you know very reasonable that's funny <laughs> so like people can't even imagine some of these things but once they see it they can confirm it I think that's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that comes to show that like generation is much harder than what we call discrimination in in AI. I know that word is not really great here, but um, but just you know to be able to classify or be able to detect or be able to confirm something is much easier or delineate something uh, is much easier than creating it than generating it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. imagining it yeah, even exactly. not, you don't even have to not necessarily even drawing it because that, that's way beyond my abilities but even just imagining it can be challenging sometimes yeah yeah how would you make a peanut butter sandwich <laughs> in the shape of cube? well according to Dali you would just make cubes out of peanut butter and cubes out of jelly Actually, and just stack them it's, it's <laughs> which is it's so great oh my god it looks ridiculous it does and, I do want to uh, eat it though so it does look tasty and but it I did also really get a kick out of the hamburger in the shape of five dimensions, which um, <laughs> definitely point for trying. I, 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 don't think, know I, think, I was literally thinking the same thing. It was really trying <laughs> at the idea of what we, you know, what we kind of imagined in like a sci-fi way of what five dimensions. Look. Yeah. Like yeah. A, it's, yeah. Like what a sci-fi movie. It's, uh, 
a trippy image of uh, hamburgers about school. And um, the person who did this, me, Maxer, who writes a quite popular blog, actually created um, Twitter and Instagram account with more of these kinds of um, AI-generated food. So it's called Weird AI Chef. You can find it at Weird AI Chef on Twitter and at Weird AI Chef on Instagram. We'll uh, link to them in the description of this episode and on lastweekend.ai. But uh, feel free to just Google them. It's a lot of fun. And on to our last article, if AI generated book jackets based on literary titles, dot, dot, dot. And so these are exactly what you think it says there, but this is in the New York Times. Um, and they basically looked at different book covers and use that as a prompt for the AI. Uh, and there were some, you know, interesting ones uh, out here. I, I, I like the book Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, so that looks pretty trippy and hallucinogenic, which the book is very hallucinogenic. So um, I, I thought that was, that was, uh, you know, very, that made sense. Um, the color scheme, I don't know where I got it from. And New York Times also mentions that, like it's a teal and salmon color scheme. So yeah, any favorites? Yeah. Yeah, these are um, by uh, using Crayon, which is the new name of Dali Mini. I also really liked the Infinite Jest one. It felt like it, you know, was conceptually something that could work. I could see um, it as a real cover, then, yeah. Exactly. And there's also one for On Earth, Briefly Gorgeous, which was a pretty cool image. In general, I'm a big fan of um, prompting these things with kind of purely abstract ideas, like, you know, the feeling of sadness. You prompt it with a feeling of sadness and just see what it outputs, right? Because there's no, you know, uh, that's a, an incredibly abstract interpretive thing, like infinite jest, right? What what should you draw for that? I don't know. So I, I, I find this kind of uh, thing a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I got a kick out of some of these generations for sure. I hope they now start using Midjourney or the Open or the Dolly one because I think I think also uh, Mini Dolly. I think they're improving Mini Dolly as we speak, um, but I think uh, the other two are still kind of leading in in the generation. Yeah, and it's it's funny to see New York Times getting in on all the fun yeah. now. Pretty much, all all of us. Uh, cannot resist the draw of playing with this uh, language to image stuff, I guess. It's just too much fun. And it's so exciting that my parents can finally understand what I work on. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's pretty exciting. Mm. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed and plenty of other ones at our newsletter at lastweekin.ai. Subscribe to us and please leave us a rating if you like the show. We love your reviews uh, and we will be happy to announce them if you if you so please on our podcast. Uh, we're very, very grateful for them. So thank you so much. Indeed, we would appreciate reviews, but uh, even if you don't, please do just keep tuning in. We... Uh, apparently have listeners which is really 
enough for us to keep doing this. Uh, so yeah, keep tuning in and we'll keep telling you about AI. It's great to have listeners, plural. Much better than listener. <laughs> <laughs>